Welcome to Northway. We're so glad that you're here. And this morning we have the privilege of sitting under the teaching of Will Washburn. Will is our kids pastor and he's been on staff uh, for a little bit over a year now. And so we are, we are so blessed and privileged uh, to have him as part of our team here and, and excited to sit under his teaching today. As we transition from worship through music to worship through the preaching of God's word, I wanna invite you to read with me our text for today. It comes from Genesis chapter one. We'll read verses one through five. You can follow along in your copy of God's word. You can also follow along on the screens behind me. And this is in your bulletin as well. And again, that is Genesis chapter one, verses one through five. It says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word, that it is our authority, that it is inerrant and that in it we have all that we need to know you and to live a life that is honoring to you, God. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak through Pastor Will, that you would give him clarity of thought, that he would communicate your truth properly. And Holy Spirit, for all of us, I ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that as we interact with your word, that you would help us to know you better uh, and to live more fully in your presence. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Good morning. As Pastor Stephen said, I'm Will Washburn. I'm the kids pastor here at Northway Church. And I'm very excited and honored to be with, uh, here with you today to share God's word. Um, this is a little bit different than a typical Sunday for me. You guys are just a little bit older than my usual audience. Uh, but I'm very, like I said, excited to be here and to share God's word with you. My wife, Lindsay, and I and our two little girls, Simri and Betty, have, feel so blessed and thankful to be a part of this church family and to have the opportunity to serve here at Northway. I love what I get to do um, to pour into the the next generation of our church to teach them and lead them and uh, share God's word with them as I partner with their parents and their families. Prior to working at Northway, I was an elementary school art teacher and a high school drama teacher, which I know is quite the combo, but I absolutely loved it. I've always been a creative guy. I've always loved the fine arts, visual art, music, theater. Um, and so I took that job and I was excited about it. There was one little hitch uh, with that job was that I was gonna have to teach elementary school. And I said initially that sixth grade was my cutoff. I wasn't going under sixth grade, but I was going to have to be a visual art teacher. And so I took the job initially because I was very excited about the high school theater part of it, a little less excited about the elementary school art part of it, but God through that season and through that um, job really prepared my heart for what I do now and taught me a lot of things about working with kids. And one thing that God taught me, one specific thing, was that it did not matter as the art teacher how well I gave the instructions. 
It did not matter how well I did my guided drawing up on the board where I did step one and they did step one, I did step two, they did step two. It didn't matter if I put the picture on the board as big as the moon, I was gonna collect up 16 different pieces of artwork at the end of a kindergarten class without fail. And sometimes those differences were subtle. They were just small things that we could tell it wasn't a carbon copy of each other. And sometimes I would look at what I had on my desk at the end of the day and say, there was no way that the 16 of us were in the same classroom together because this, I don't know, they were not getting what I was, was telling them or something. But what I came to realize was that those differences were not based on any artistic choice that the kid was making. And it really wasn't based on my instruction. Those differences really came from the kids' personalities. And what I mean by that is this, that you had the little boy that everything in life was a race and he was just getting through it as fast as he could with big, bold marks on his paper and it ended up a little bit sloppy at the end. You had a little girl that knew uh, that it was a perfectionist, was the line leader. She knew the schedule. She knew who was the line leader for that day, her teacher's address, her social security number. She knew how things were supposed to be and she was gonna make sure it was in order. And each and every line was perfect and she never finished because she took so long on steps one and two and three. There'd be the kid that doesn't like the way the chalk fills on the page. There was the kid that was mad at his teacher so he was gonna show me by not doing anything that day. And all of those differences in temperament and personality were reflected in their artwork at the end of the class period. But this is not just true for kindergarten artists, it's also true for adult artists, for famous artists. See, every Tennessee Williams play, every Vincent Van Gogh painting, Beethoven symphony, Taylor Swift song, episode of Bluey is gonna have something about the creator reflected in that piece of art. There's a German-American painter named Hans Hoffmann, and he said it like this, every art expression is rooted fundamentally in the personality and the temperament of the artist. Hans Hoffmann also said that art is the overflowing expression of the artist's soul. See, this is true for all art. Art is the product of the artist's hand, but also their heart, their soul, their mind, their experience, their background, and the message that they want to convey. Art always reflects in some way, big or small, the artist. So today we're gonna to look at Genesis 1, and in the same way that art reflects the artist, I believe that creation reflects the creator. So we're gonna look at Genesis 1 maybe in a little bit different way than you have in the past. See, oftentimes we read Genesis 1 and we think of it as the second grade Sunday school lesson that we learned years ago and we don't need to revisit. We think of it as history or simply an explanation. And it is those things. It is history, it is an explanation. But today I want us to look at creation and I want us to look at it through a different lens. I want us to look at it to understand our creator to understand God more rightly, more properly. And what I believe is that when we understand God properly, that we will relate to him properly. And when we have right relationship with God, the rest of our life will fall in line. So today we're gonna to look at Genesis 1 and we're going to revisit it, go back to the beginning and look at creation to understand our creator a little more. So before we jump into the text, I wanna make one thing clear. Uh, some will argue that Genesis 1 is simply a myth, an allegory, some type of metaphor that helps us understand God and man, but it didn't actually happen. That is not what I'm saying at all. I believe Genesis 1 to be historical, factual, and true history. I believe though in that history, we can understand God more. And so we're gonna dive a little bit deeper today. So lucky for you, you don't have to turn far in your Bible to get to Genesis 1. We're on page one, okay? And if I'm correct, I probably know that when I start this first verse, you can finish it for me. In the beginning, God... Yeah, there you go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We know this. Uh, it's a famous line, right? And many of us would say, yeah, we believe that to be 
true, and we know that. That's, that's old news. However, I want us to look at this, and it's going to tell us our first point about who God is. God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God, and then all of creation follows suit. Brings us to our first point about God today, that God is preeminent creator. Before all of creation, God is there, and he creates it. And since God is before all of creation, he is therefore above all creation. That's what I mean when I say preeminent creator. Before all things, above all things. God is supreme and superior before all of creation. So many of us know this to be true. We believe this. However, our life does not really reflect this in a lot of ways. See, as I said, I am a kids pastor. I get asked some pretty big questions by little kids. And one of those big questions I get asked often is, and I think it's like a little bit tricky. They're trying to trip me up. Well, Mr. Will, who created God? To which I respond, well, no one created God. God has always been. God will always be. He is eternal which I feel like is a good answer. And it never once has satisfied a kid, never once. They're never like, oh yes, true, true children's pastor, that's right. No, they're like, well, somebody had to create God because our whole world is ordered in cause and effect, right? We see an effect and we know there has to be a cause. So it doesn't sit right with us to think that God has just always been and there's nothing that made him. So typically I'll say, well, let's just say for the sake of argument that someone did make God, that God had a creator. I'll ask them, who created that being? And they'll say, well, I guess someone has it. All the way down the line, there's gonna always have to be a first creator. Theologian Thomas Aquinas calls this the first cause. That's how he explains God's existence. That there's always going to be a cause to the effect. And we can follow that all the way down until you get to something, right? There's always gonna have to be that first spark, that first move. And in Genesis one, it tells us that God is that first mover, that first cause. Psalm 92 describes it like this. Before the mountains were born, you brought forth the whole world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is eternal before all things, our preeminent creator. See, this matters to us. This may seem trivial, may seem like something we know, but oftentimes we want to be our own creator. And culture tells us that we can be, right? Create the career you want through hard work. Create the lifestyle you want through choices or buying this product. We are called to be our own creator, but we are not our creator. We are creation. And Genesis 1, 1, 1 puts God in the proper place as a creator and us the creation. Now, like I said, I was an art teacher and I'm gonna let you in on a little bit uh, secret today. My biggest pet peeve in the art room. Are you ready for it? It's when I tell the kids today, we're gonna learn how to draw a face. And so what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna draw the whole thing from start to finish. And then I'll give you your paper and your materials and we'll do it together step by step. But from the start, I'm gonna go from beginning to end and you just watch. And so I'm up here drawing my face, got my oval, I'm dividing it and doing all the stuff art teachers do. And some seven-year-old in the back says, Mr. Washburn, that doesn't look like a face gets me every time, it grinds my gears. Uh, and the reason it bothered me was for two reasons. Number one, I was like halfway done. I'm not even finished yet. Okay, so just be patient. And number two, I saw what that seven-year-old could make and he had no room to talk. It, it never failed. I'm like, I've seen what you can do, sit down. Uh, but here's the thing, that questioning of me made me mad, probably because of my own pride and I need to work on that. But that questioning of me showed me two things about that kid and his belief. Their criticism showed me, number one, they didn't trust me as the artist, that I could get to the final product that I promised. The second thing that it showed me is that what they saw on the board at that present moment 
dictated what they believed about the future. See, it looked like, it didn't look like a face yet. And they thought, well, it's never gonna look like a face. And I hate to let you in on a little secret. Oftentimes we are just like that seven-year-old in the art room. We don't trust that the creator can do what he says he's gonna do. We don't trust him as our creator and us as the creation. The other thing about that is we are so often, we let our hope uh, for the future be dictated by what's happening in the present circumstance. We are nearsighted. We can't see beyond what's happening in our world right now. But we can rest assured that there is a creator that has been from the beginning and will be at the end. And he is holding us in his hand because we are his creation. So God is that ultimate creator. And when we see him as that ultimate creator, it should put us in our place. Psalm 33, six through nine reminds us of God in his proper place. It says, the Lord merely spoke and the heavens were created. He breathed the word and all of the stars were born. He assigned the seas its boundaries and locked the oceans into vast reservoirs. Let the whole world fear the Lord. Let everyone stand in awe of him. For when he spoke, the world began. It appeared at his command. See, our response to our creator should not be doubt, but it should be one of reverence and awe that leads to trust. So Genesis 1-1 sets up God as that preeminent creator. And then in Genesis 1-2, it's gonna set the stage for where God begins creating. Now, often when we tell the creation story, we talk about how God created the world from nothing. And this is true. But our modern understanding of nothing is a little bit different than how the ancient Hebrew readers would have understood nothing. See, when I think of nothing, I think about me floating out into black, silent, still space, right? That idea of just calm, quiet, almost neutral, like a blank canvas, a blank page that we create upon. But that's not what we have in verse two. That's not really what's described. So let's look at Genesis 1, 2 and see what it says. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The description we have here in Genesis 1-2 is not a neutral blank canvas, but a dark, formless, shapeless, empty, watery depths that it says the Spirit of God hovers over. This idea of nothingness being a watery, chaotic depth, depth is one that's carried through in other prehistoric ancient creation stories. In Egyptian and Babylonian uh, creation narratives, we see this as well. We see the idea that nothing, the nothing before creation is kind of a chaotic water. It's a, it's a space that life cannot inhabit. However, the gods in those narratives come up out of the water and have to defeat it in some way. The water precedes their existence. And those gods, uh, the Egyptian gods or the Babylonian gods come out and they conquer it through some violent victory. The God in Genesis one is very different. See that our God precedes the chaos and he's not absent from it. We see his spirit hovering over the water, ready to act. And all that our God has to do to act is speak, which is gonna get us to our next point about God. God is all powerful. First Chronicles 29, 11 says, "'Yours, Lord, is the greatness, the power, "'the glory, the majesty, and the splendor. "'For everything in heaven and earth is yours. "'Yours, Lord, is the kingdom, "'and you are exalted as head over all.'" See, God doesn't have to battle with the chaotic water. All he has to do is speak. It's like when your mom gives you that look in the grocery store. That look has power, right? Or they say your name in a certain way and you know you gotta get in line. God's voice has power. He has enough power in his voice to call light into being, to separate the sky and the sea, to form land and fill that land with plants and birds and fish and animals of all kinds. See, God's voice has power. 
When I think about the power of God's voice, a power that calls creation into being, it makes me feel two things, very small and very dumb. And I'll tell you the dumb part, because if God's voice has enough power to call all of creation into being, and I believe that his voice speaks to me through his word, then why do I not follow, heed, and read everything that is in this book? If his voice has enough power to call all of creation into being, to say a word and light appears, and he speaks through his word, who am I not to listen? And one of two things has to be happening there. Either we don't believe he has that power in his voice and his word, or we do, but we for some reason think that we know a little bit better than he does. So today I wanna to remind you that God's voice has power because he is all powerful. His voice brings all of creation into order and we should listen at the sound of his voice. Through his voice, he calls all of creation into being. But I love what God starts with. So we have this chaotic watery depths and it says that it is dark. And God's first act of creation, he says, let there be light and there is light. Now, I fully believe that if God wanted to, he could have snapped his finger, fingers and the world would have been formed perfect and complete. But we see God have a progression here. He creates the world in six days, six days and rest on the seventh day. But I love what God starts with. He starts with light. And that brings us to our next attribute about God. God is light. First John 1.5 tells us, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. I think it's important that God begins with light because from the get-go, he shows us the power that light has to conquer the darkness. See, this watery depth is one that you can't live in because we need light to survive, right? The plants grow because of the light. We, we eat the plants. Light sustains so much of our world. But beyond that, light has the power to conquer the darkness. God speaks and light appears, and it says that the, it separates the light from the darkness. And God's light has the power to penetrate into the darkness. And using that light, God begins to create his world. Now we see the light represented through the rest of scripture as well, that God uh, uses the light as a representation of righteousness and his goodness. And on the other hand, we see the darkness as a representation of sin and evil in our world. And so I love that God begins with light and shows that his light is powerful. Now, from light, God is going to create a very ordered world from that chaotic, watery depth. And this is going to get us to our next point about God, that God is peace. Okay, we see in the creation narrative, God bringing peace from chaos through each of the days of creation. And he does this through great creativity, but he also does it through order and structure. See, I'm a creative guy. I love the fact that God fills our world with beautiful things, right? He fills our world with wonder. But I also love the fact that God does it in an ordered way because none of us like chaos, right? We know that we need order and we need structure. And God in his design brings peace from the chaos through order. First Corinthians 14, uh, 14, 33 tells us that God is not a God of disorder or confusion, but of peace, okay? And so I have a slide that's gonna come up on the screen. I would not be a good elementary school art teacher without a PowerPoint, so here you go. Uh, and what I want you to see here is that top row there, God is going to make a very ordered uh, three realms of living. And then what happens on the next three days, days four through six, God fills those realms. There's a progression and an order to his creation, 
Okay, so on day one, God creates the realms of day and night through the creation of light, right? He says, let there be light and there is light. And so he's making day and night. And then on the rest of the days of creation, God is going to say there, or the scripture says, there is evening, there is morning, the second day, the third day. And so God from the beginning creates time and he creates the day and the night as the first realms that he creates. Then God is going to separate the water and create the sky and the sea. That's the next realm, day number two. And then on the third day from the water, God is going to create land, which is our third realm. And then in the same order, the same fashion, God fills each of those spaces. So for day and night, he's going to fill them with the lights of the heavens, which is the sun for the day and the moon and the stars at night. And then on the uh, fourth day, just like on the second day, he's going to fill the realms of the sky and the sea with birds and fish of all kinds. And then lastly, on the sixth day, he's going to fill up the realm of land with land animals of every kind, according to their kind, and man. So God has an ordered progression to his creation that makes sense. And this really reflects a little bit of who God is, that God is order, and from that order, he brings peace. So the world that we have on day six, at the end of day six, is highly different than what's described in Genesis 1-2. Right? It's no longer a shapeless, empty, wild waste, dark ocean. We have a world with land that is full of living creatures of all kinds. So God brings peace from the chaos because God is peace. Now on the third day of creation, God makes land, like I said, but God gives us like a two for one special, like a little bit of a bonus deal. Uh, he makes the land, but he also gives us the first uh, sign of life on the planet, and that is the plants. It says that um, in Genesis 1:11, God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed according to its kind. We have the first sign of life on the planet. God gives us plants and flowers uh, with seeds that will reproduce and he's filling it up with things that will grow and uh, flourish on the earth. God then will fill it up with other living beings, like I said, the animals that we see and then ultimately people uh, are his final creation. And this shows us that God is life, that by his word, he can create life. He can call life into being. Now, I know that many of us uh, know the feeling of standing at the shore, looking out onto the ocean, and all you can see for miles is water, right? Or standing on the top of a mountain and looking down on the creation and seeing uh, the world below you. And in that feeling, we feel kind of the majesty of God. We feel his magnitude. And those moments make us feel very small and make God feel very big, right? But I I also think about a moment where I felt the majesty of God, but also felt uh, how important my own life was. And it's not because I'm important. It's because God is life and he's a life giver. And it's the moment that I held both of my girls for the first time in my hands. Seeing this precious little girl, Simri, born on August 16th, and then 17 months later, her little sister, Betty, and seeing how small and fragile they are and how precious they are, but seeing that each and every breath they breathe in is going to flow through their body, and God has designed them in such a way that their systems and their organs all work together and sustain their life. I was reminded in that moment of how precious life is and how fragile it is, and that it is in God's hand that life is held. And as they grow and they become their own people, I'm reminded again and again that that life is precious. And it's not because man is so special, it's because God has given us life and he holds life in his hands. Uh, Psalm 36, nine tells us that God is the fountain of life. Job 33, four says, the spirit of God has made me and the breath of the almighty gives me life. 
And so what we see in days three through six is that God calls all living things into being because he is life. Now from there, uh, like I said, God, he's filled the planet with living things. And the last thing that he makes before he rests on the seventh day is man, right? Often called the pinnacle of creation, God makes man. So let's look at the text and see what it tells us about God's creation of man. Genesis 1, 26 through 27 says this, then God said, let us make mankind in our own image and in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So there's two things about this, this scripture here that point to our last point about God. And that point is this, that God is relational. So the first point I wanna make is this. Uh, the inclusion of us and our in that scripture is not by mistake. They didn't just use the wrong word in the Hebrew. It's actually a very intentional choice in the Hebrew. It is a plural uh, word with a singular connotation. And that sounds very grammatical. And I was an art teacher, grammar's not my thing. But what that means is this, that the word itself is plural, but the way it's used in the sentence is a singular word meaning the word itself is, is pointing to more than one, but the sentence says that they're talking about one thing. And that's our first glimpse of the Trinity, that God is three in one. From the beginning, he says, let us make mankind in our image. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And within the Trinity, God relates and communes with himself. So within the Trinity, God is relational. The second thing that it shows us in the creation of man is that God made us to be relational with him. It's not by mistake that God makes us image bearers to bear his image. <clears throat> so let's talk a little bit about what that means. I am the third son of my parents and I have two older brothers. And when you see my dad and you see my oldest brother, you say, that makes sense. And then you add the second brother in there and you're like, okay, they all look alike. And then you throw me in the mix and you're like, what happened? I don't look like my older brothers or my dad. Time and time again growing up, I would hear people see one of my brothers and my dad wouldn't be there or whatever, and they would say, oh, well, you must be a Washburn, talking to my older brother, Bo, or my older brother, Tarver. Never once have I heard, oh, you must be a Washburn, just by first glance. I've actually heard the, the opposite. I've been like, yeah, I'm Will Washburn. They're like, are you sure you're a Washburn? <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I don't bear the physical image of my father, right? I don't look like them. You see the three of them together and they're out at a restaurant and I'm there too. They're like, oh, it's a dad and his two sons and a kid they picked up on the street. <laughs> I don't match the rest of them uh, physically. But the older that I get, and you probably know this to be true, I'll say something and I'm like, dang it, that was Kim Washburn coming out of my mouth. And I'll be playing with my girls doing something silly and Lindsay is like, that was your dad. That was 100% your dad. I don't bear his physical image, but the older I get, the more I see the things that matter to him, the things that he found funny, the things that he valued are coming out of me more and more. I bear his image spiritually, emotionally, mentally, right? I think that's what God had in mind when he describes us as his image bearers. Man is made different from the rest of creation, right? We are rational, spiritual, relational beings. God tells us it's not good for man to be alone. He makes Eve to be able to relate to Adam because he knows how important relationship is. God gives us his spirit or gives us a spirit uh, so that we can uh, relate to him spiritually. We can have a relationship with God, unlike the rest of creation. God makes us in that way to relate to him, to dwell with him. So there's this distinction there. We are an image bearer because God wants to relate to us. 
So we see Adam on the last day. He is set up. He has his partner. He is given dominion over the created world. There is light, life, peace, order, and God says that it is very good. And I would love to end my sermon right here, but we know that that's not the world that we live in, right? We still have glimpses of God's good creation in the created world, but we know that there is chaos in our world, that there is confusion, there is disorder, we've lost loved ones. We know that the world that God created is not exactly the world that we live in. See, we all have felt in some way or another that confusion, that emptiness that Miriam mentioned in her baptism video, that chaos within our own heart. And I can think of a time in my own life, a very specific time. Are you ready for this? It was January 24th at 3.48 a.m. in a recliner at my in-law's house that I felt that sense and that feeling of chaos in my heart. And I'm going to back up a little bit and tell you how I got there. But I, that's the moment that I really was like, this does not feel right. So my wife, Lindsay, and I, we had lived in Louisville, Kentucky for a year and a half. And I was attending Southern Seminary, uh, pursuing a degree in worship leadership, planning to be a worship pastor. While in Louisville, I got a job teaching at a small school part-time while I was in seminary. And through that uh, role as teacher, I really felt a calling to work with kids. And what I thought at the time, that meant in the classroom. And so I kind of switched directions and uh, I was planning to leave seminary indefinitely to be a classroom teacher. Uh, with the hopes of it being visual or theatrical arts. So Lindsay and I, through much prayer and conversation, we decided we we're gonna leave Louisville, leave seminary and move back home. And so at the end of 2018, we moved in with my in-laws temporarily. I was working as a house painter temporarily and uh, we had plans for our future. We also had just found out in December of 2018 that Lindsay was expecting our first daughter. So we had a lot of reason to be excited for the future. And so we were at this place in our life where we were working toward a future that we had in mind and um, we were excited about what was to come. So then on January 20th, I was on the way to church to lead worship uh, at my dad's church. And I was in a car accident that left Lindsay's car totaled, my arm broken in two places, me out of work for the foreseeable future because it's pretty hard to paint a house with your arm in the cast and a baby on the way. So all of that pressure being a first time dad was like put into a pressure cooker. And there I was on January 24th, uh, two days after surgery at my in-laws house, which my in-laws are great, but still sitting in that brown recliner at my in-laws house with my arm propped up, not able to sleep. Partially because I was physically uncomfortable, but mainly because I could not turn my mind off. See, I was asking God a thousand questions. Do we make the right choice coming home? Are we gonna be able to be prepared and ready to have a kid? Am I gonna be able to do this? All these questions in my mind and in my heart. And really what I, uh, looking back on that moment, that wasn't the start of the lack of peace. The lack of peace had been there for a long time. Those events magnified it and illuminated it in a lot of ways. But there I was on January 24th, just feeling that sense of disorder, chaos, and through the next about year and a half, uh, though I looked cool, calm, and collected on the outside, my heart was in complete disarray. My heart really reflected what we see in verse uh, one and two of Genesis. I mean, verse, chapter one, verse two of Genesis, that chaotic waters. There was no peace. And in that chaos and in that lack of peace, I allowed sin uh, to, to come into my heart and, and from that sin, darkness. And so my heart was just in this, this bad place. 
And then you turn into the 2020 from 2019, and we all know what happens in March of 2020, our whole world gets turned upside down. And every national, local, family, personal issue is brought to the surface, and you're trapped at home, and you have nowhere to run from it. And so by the summer of 2020, the end of the summer of 2020, I was beat down spiritually, and my heart was filled with chaos and disorder. And at the time, I was leading worship part-time at the church while I taught uh, full-time at Tattnall. And I remember leading a hymn, Great Is Thy Faithfulness, and I was singing uh, up on stage with a mask on, which is very 2020, but I couldn't make it through the third verse, and it's not because it's really hard to sing through a mask, which it is. I couldn't make it through the third verse because the lyrics of that hymn God used to convict my heart in a major way. I'm going to read it to you today. It says this, Pardon for sin and peace that endureth, Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. See, God reminded me in that moment that I had no reason to be feeling the way that I was feeling. That there is peace and there is a pardon for sin that can be found in His Son. That the sin that was in my heart, the lack of peace, the chaos that was in my heart did not have to be there. Because there was a solution to all of that. See, Genesis 1 tells us in the beginning, but so does John 1, and I want to look there today. John 1 says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to, the, to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor the hus uh, husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory and the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, my heart was in chaos, but it didn't need to be. Because just like God used the light to pierce through the darkness in Genesis 1, God sent his light into the world to fix the problem of sin, to get rid of the chaos, to bring order and peace where there was none. See, if you have chaos in your heart today, there's a solution for that problem. If you have sin in your heart today that is creating chaos, there is a solution to that problem. Jesus is the preeminent Savior who is before all things, above all things, who has always been at the right hand of God. And God sent His Son, that Savior, into the world to be the light of the world. That through that light, there would be, uh, the darkness would be gotten rid of. That problem would have been fixed. And through that light, He would bring order and peace. And for those who call upon his name, we can have that peace. For those who call upon his name, that light brings life. And that life is salvation through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. So I don't know where you are today, where you come from, or what experience you may be walking through. I don't know if you're like that seven-year-old in the classroom and you're saying, what I'm seeing right now, God, does not look like the finished product that you promised. But what I can assure you is that God is above all things, that we are his creation, and he sent his son to fix the problem of sin. He sent his son to bring us new life, peace, and light. And just like I said that God is relational, 
that he made man to dwell with him, to bear his image, to have a relationship with him. Jesus came to die on the cross to fix the problem of sin that we could never fix so that we might have right relationship with God. Jesus did that on our behalf because he loves us, because he wants us to know him. He wants us to bring him glory and to enjoy him forever. He wants to have a relationship with you. He made the world, he made you his image bearer because he loves you, he wants to know you. He wants you to glorify him. And he sent his son to fix the problem of sin. And for those who call upon his name, we can have that peace, we can have that light, and we can have a right relationship with him.